alarm bells are going off. This is an emergency. Break the glass. We are sending Charlotte Pirelli. Hello and welcome to the Euro What, episode number 204, dropping on August 29th, 2023. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. In this episode, we're breaking out the pickled herring and saying hey to next year's host country, Sweden. Happy a couple of days before Eurovision New Year, Mike. Cannot wait. Yeah, yeah. We are we're, we're slightly earlier than usual. Usually, the new year has already dropped by the time that we say welcome. But calendars being what they are, we have a few days. But hey, let's get excited. Things are already moving. Like we already know the host city. Everything seems to be a little bit ahead of schedule this year. So per- perhaps that'll be the theme. Uh, Eurovision is actually happening in March. So yeah, <laughs> <sighs> Swedish efficiency theoretically. Eurovision New Year, everything after September 1st is eligible song-wise, and that's really when everybody comes back from their summer break and starts sorting through their inbox and going, oh, right, we need to have a selection next February. Let's let's get that in, in order. Again, we know the host city. We'll maybe get a few artists popping up between now and then, uh, maybe a song or two by December, because uh, Festival Ikengis always happens in December. Ukraine could be ahead of the game this time around again. Lots to watch out for. Just to kind of go over what our calendar looks like. For the rest of 2023, we'll be doing these every other week episodes talking about various topics. And then once January rolls around and selection season gets into full swing, we'll go back to a weekly format where we talk about the selection shows, the songs that are picked, the artists that are picked. And yeah, just kind of get on the runway toward Malmo and Eurovision 2024. If you want to hear more from us on... Slightly more adjacent topics. That's what the EuroWhat AV Club, our Patreon, is for. That is over at patreon.com slash EuroWhat. We've already started the Sweden coverage over on our Patreon. Our last episode was about ABBA Gold. It's a good time over there. So definitely check that out. For the moment, we are also on Twitter and Blue Sky and all of the other 37 social media networks we have now as EuroWhat. So find us there if you are so intrigued. Okay, so let's say Velkomen to Sveria. It's always fun when the Eurovision New Year rolls around to just like wheel out the World Book Encyclopedia or whatnot to just go, okay, what's this country's whole deal? Because like I just generally have a blind spot in my own knowledge, geography and history wise, despite being a Eurovision person. So it's just great to dig that out. This coming year, we will be in the Kingdom of Sweden. It is the largest Nordic country. It's the third largest in the EU and it's the fifth largest in Europe. It has a population of 10.5 million people, and 87% of Swedes live in urban areas in sort of the central south part of the country, which is about 1.5% of the total land area. Oh, wow. That's dense. Very densely in the non-super cold parts of the country. Makes a lot of sense. It's a constitutional monarchy and a parliamentary democracy. This means that they have a king, a prime minister, and a Reichstag speaker. The current king is Carl Gustav the 16th. And as we know from May, the current queen of Sweden is Lorene. More specifically, we're going to be in Malmo this year. It's the third largest city in Sweden. It's the third time that we will have been there. And the metro area has a population of roughly 700,000 people. It's part of the greater Malmo metropolitan area, the Orisund area. It includes Malmo and Copenhagen, and trains run between the cities every 20 minutes, which is why seemingly every Eurofan I know is staying in Copenhagen next year. Last year, we talked about how Ukraine is very good at Eurovision and knows how to use the contest as a tool of soft power. I started off in kind of a similar place with Sweden at the start of the summer. So Sweden is very good at Eurovision, and it reflects... Uh, okay, uh, Sweden is very good at Eurovision, and it's because... 
And I kept failing to finish that sentence. And I would go down a bunch of different angles and think, oh, this is it, and then not go anywhere with that. The more I dug into the history of their time at the contest and crunching some numbers on how they've scored in recent years, I have a different, slightly galaxy-brained hypothesis. I don't think Sweden is actually good at Eurovision. Huh. Now, I'm not saying they're bad at Eurovision. That's a completely different thing. I'm just saying that they're not as good as we generally think they are. And part of that could be my own feelings towards the recent entries. I used to be very gung-ho about watching Melfest, like, front to back every year. And it's noticeably been sinking down my watch this live list every year if you listen to this show. I wanted to also examine those biases and see, okay, is is this sort of clouding my ability to see them? And it led me to a very different endpoint and a very different metaphor than I expected, but we will get to that towards the end of our discussion. If you look at how many points they've earned in the contest overall... They have the most points, and it's not even close. As of 2023, they have 6,471 total points earned in the contest. I found a chart from 2016, and I did the math on it to update it to the present. The United Kingdom is second, with 4,571 points, 1,900 points below Sweden. Like, they're not catching up anytime soon. Uh, Continuing down the list, you have France with 4,373 points, Norway, 3,974 Ukraine, 3,623, Germany, 3,472, and then Ireland sort of rounding out that top seven with 3,428. Those are some big numbers, but I'm not actually sure that's a good indicator of success. It's more of a reflection of participation. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say, because like Ukraine is surprising in that list just because they've only been in the contest for about 20 years, and all of those other countries have been in like around six decades. Looking at the top five of the list, the United Kingdom and France, their participation dates back to the 1950s start point of the contest. Norway mm. stretches back to the 60s. Uh, as you noted, Ukraine is in the top five. That's pretty impressive because they've only been at the contest 20 times compared to like the rest of this list is generally around at least 60 participations. That suggests that last year's hypothesis that Ukraine is very good at this is true, though. Good job, Ukraine. You're very good at this. Similarly to Ukraine, uh, Sweden has a very impressive attendance record when it comes to the, the grand final. They have made the final 61 out of the 62 times they participated. There's one of those that I think is debatable, but we'll get there. Uh, and how they've chosen their entry is also pretty consistent. The first time they showed up to Eurovision, they had internally selected Alice Babs. She placed fourth. That was in 1958. But then 1959, they, ho- they held a televised selection it's not called Melfest yet. It's called something that's real complicated in Sweden that I didn't even try to figure out the, the transcription for. And it doesn't matter because in 1960, it's called Melody Festival, and, and they retroactively refer to the 1959 thing as Melody Festival in 1959. So it's literally always been Melfest. They have only missed three contests since they debuted in 1958. In 1964, there was a strike among members of the Swedish Union for the Performing Arts and Film, but they still broadcast Eurovision. In 1970... Multiple nations, so not just Sweden, also Finland, Norway, Portugal, Austria, boycotted just officially because the contest was marginalizing smaller countries and was no longer good television. But it was probably also related to that four-way tie from the previous year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I did dig up a really lovely thing from an actual Swedish newspaper that translated, we've had enough when we see the singers come in, sing their song, and go away year after year. Originally, it was a song contest. Now it's a show of stars. Small countries don't stand a chance. Ireland gets their first win in a field of 12 songs in 1970. Uh, We will talk about the third time Sweden does not go to the contest fairly shortly. But going back to arguments like why you would say that Sweden is good at Eurovision, like, they have to be good. Like, they've won seven times. On the other hand, Ireland has also won seven times, and I do not feel anybody is arguing lately that they are very good at Eurovision. 
But looking at Sweden's victories, I think that's as much about what's happening at the contest at the time as it is the, the songs that Sweden is sending, especially when you start to look at what happens between those wins. Let's start with ABBA because we kind of have to. So ABBA wins in 1974. But if you look what happened in the year directly before that, in 1973, there's a rule change that allows pre-recorded backing tracks along with the orchestra, as long as the instrumental sounds in the recording are mimed live. ABBA is one of the first bands to take advantage of that. And if you watch the ABBA performance from the 1974 contest, it is, it is very much pre-recorded backing track plus some orchestra on top of that. ABBA wins in 1974. This is a very different score system. Like, we think of ABBA as being a clear winner. ABBA wins with 24 points. Like, 24 total points. Which scoring system was that? I know we did that jury episode a couple of years back where, was was this when there was like a 13-year-old and a 37-year-old and they each got four points or something? I, or? I, I forget, but like you are getting to the point in my notes where I'm like, we talked about the various scoring system changes in episode 29 of our show. It's not a couple of years, oh, it's five years. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, yeah, this has just been like a fun gallery of like going back through our archives to be like, when did we talk about this stuff? But yeah, we've talked about the various scoring systems, but I want to talk about what happened when Sweden hosted in 1975, because that's the birth of the 12-point scoring system. Right. So again, if you want to hear us talk about the various weird scoring methods, that's episode 29. The 1975 system, there is an 11-member jury for each country. Half of the jury has to be under the age of 26. Each song is awarded between one and five points, and those votes are cast and collected immediately after the song is performed. There's a jury secretary tabulating all the votes for each song and taking those scores all into account, giving their top choice 12 points, the next 10 points, the third place 8 points, etc., etc. Like, there have been modifications here and there to what the jury looks like and how much televote counts. But the 12-point system sticks around when there had been, like, a lot of change between years before that. In terms of setting trends, if you look at what wins in 1975 and 1976, it's kind of similar to ABBA. Like, Teachin wins with under the new system with 152 points, but Teachin's Ding a Dong and ABBA's Waterloo, they feel related. Yeah, they're in the same part of the record store. Same thing with Brotherhood of Man, Save Your Kisses for Me. That wins in 1976 with 164 points. Sweden is kind of setting some trends there, but I think just that period of Eurovision... You're essentially starting the contest over from scratch every year and maybe starting to have a binder that goes from country to country as they do this, as we keep thinking this is a good thing. But if you look between when ABBA wins and when they next win in 1984, it's a little rough. They ended up sitting out the contest in 1976 because of how expensive it was to run things in 1975. The broadcaster did not have enough money if Sweden won again. There were public demonstrations held. And ultimately, it leads to a new rule that in the future, each participating broadcaster pays a part of the cost of staging the contest to keep it more sustainable for everybody and to make sure that smaller nations are not wiped out by the, the cost of running Eurovision. Right. Yeah, because that was the issue with Israel when they won the second time. They're just like, uh, we don't want this financial burden. Exactly. And that happens after this rule comes into effect. It's just Eurovision is kind of expensive to, to run. So they set out 1976. In 1977, they come last. 
I sent you a playlist, but like I made sure that that uh, Forbes's Beatles was on that list. It's not a great song. I looked up the lyrics. It's literally just like the Beatles gave us some really good songs. Surprising that that wasn't part of the songbook this year in Liverpool. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it like the song is also in Swedish. So, like maybe that's why it didn't true. It, it didn't come to the attention of this year's planning committee. Maybe this one just like wasn't. Maybe there was like a very contentious Melfest that year, and this squeaked through. Nope, it won handily. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, like it was. It yeah. It it topped most of the juries at the Melfest that year. My thought is that maybe it was just like a smidge too disco for the contest at the time. We're still very much in the orchestral pop era of the contest, but it only gets two points overall. This is the last time that Sweden has ever come last in the contest. They also came last in 1963, but that was the older scoring system. Four nations all got zero points, and there were only 16 participants total. So like that, I mean, it, is it last place? Yes, but also no. Right. Anyways, like 1975 through 1982, Sweden is always just kind of a little off from what the contest is looking for in a given year. They're fast when it's slow. They're disco-y when it's still very orchestral. They're very rock and roll when it's a ballad year. In 1983, they placed third uh, with some unknown singer named Carola Hogfist, who we'll probably never hear from again. That year, like they get 126 points from the juries in comparison to Luxembourg's 142. It's their third best placement at the time. And Luxembourg wins that year with a number that feels really Celine Dion, even though Celine Dion won't happen until 1984, one thing that's very impressive about their win that year is that Harry's perform Digaloo Digalay first on the night. Like, they win from first position in the running order. Teachin and Brotherhood of Man also perform first. Those are the only three times that's, that's won. Oh, wow. No song that has performed first or second has won since then. Huh. As more countries want to participate, the show gets longer, so, like, performing first becomes more and more of an obstacle. But Digaloo Digalay wins. 1985, Sweden hosts in Gothenburg, uh, and it's kind of a reunion of their 1982 act, Chips. That's a duo of Kiki Danielson and Elizabeth Andreasen. So Kiki Danielson represents Sweden that year in 1985 and comes third. Uh, Elizabeth Andreasen is representing Norway as part of Bobby Sox that year and gives Norway their first victory. And like, there's that whole moment at the end where just like the host is just like, you guys have done so poorly for so long. This is so great. <laughs> The rest of the 80s, Sweden's kind of up and down. Uh, I sent you their 1987 entry that I just wrote down as White People Calypso. Yeah, I have in my notes, oh no, Sheila from Accounts Payable going to happy hour karaoke at the new Tiki Bar down the street. (laughs) (laughs) Please put a clip of that in the show. One thing that I think is hampering Sweden at the time is Sweden tends to do better in the contest when they can sing in a language that's not Swedish. 
Uh, not always true. Like, they have had some wins in Swedish, Degaloo, Degalay, uh, and Corolla, who we will be talking about. But the language rule goes back into effect in 1977, and from there until the late 90s, Sweden needs to send a song in Swedish. In general, they're starting to get better about understanding what's on trend in a given year. Having gone through all of these kind of wilderness periods to see what they were sending and what the contest was choosing as a winner, 88, 89, and 90, they're at least in the same genre as what's winning. They're at least better at understanding, oh, this is what's popular right now. kind of drive by Corolla because we literally just talked about the 1991 contest last episode. In looking at this one, I realized that we talked about the four-way tie and tiebreakers in episode 64. And at the time, I had said I didn't know what the tiebreaker system was like pre-91. And I did some research. And let's talk about how 1991 could have gone very differently had it been a few years earlier. So... The whole deal with 1969, uh, 16 countries participated, four nations tied, there was no tiebreak system, everybody was mad. In 1970, they immediately put a tiebreak policy into place. There would be a runoff in the event of a tie. However many songs had gotten the same score would perform again, and the jury would vote for their favorites, and the one that got the most points would win. In 1989, they institute the rollback system. So the winner of the tie is the country that received more 12 points. If that's the same, the one that received most 10 points, and so on and so forth. If you somehow have two entries that match on every level, both of them are joint winners. Which, honestly, if you hit that much of a statistical coincidence, both of those songs deserve to win, in my opinion. The universe is weighing in at that point. The current policy is not too far off from that, although now winner of the televote is ahead of has the most 12 points. So we keep adding additional hurdles for these songs to jump over. If you jump over all the hurdles, you are both the winner. Right. Had that change not happened in 1989, there could have been a runoff at the 1991 contest. Mr. Frank Neff, who is already dealing with chaos, just probably would have had an aneurysm. (laughs) So it's perhaps for the best. Can you imagine uh, Toto, RIP, and and co-host having to also oversee a a runoff set of performances and announcement of winner. The contest would probably still be happening as we are recording this. (laughs) Uh, But because of that change in procedure, there's no runoff, just the countback. Sweden wins by having the most 10 points. France becomes an iconic second. To hear more about iconic seconds, our most recent episode before this one, check it out. So Sweden hosts the 1992 contest in Malmo. They send some guy named Christer Bjorkman, who we'll probably never hear from again. He places next to last. Really? He places one above Finland that year, which I think part of it is just like the host always is always has like a tough time. And what, what's weird is that like they're on trend, like they send a ballad. Linda Martin wins for Ireland with a ballad that year. Uh, it's kind of cool that in the background you have that Viking ship, but you have like a representation of a bridge above it. That's that's the bridge that's eventually going to be built between Malmo and Copenhagen. Oh, the one made famous by the bridge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So again, Sweden doesn't do that well at 92. 93 has has like a fun technical glitch involved just because they decided to try televoting at Melfest 1993. 
and apparently it blew out the Swedish phone system. I just love that the first time everybody tried televoting in the <laughs> 90s, they're like, we're ready for this. And then technology was like, you guys are not ready for this. Anyways, they still use the televote and send Arvin Garna. But apparently, if the backup jury votes were used, Arvind Garner would have placed fourth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which, what did you think of that one? Um, Number one song in the U.S. that week of Eurovision was Janet Jackson's That's the Way Love Goes, which is kind of the polar opposite of this. Oh, oh, yeah. No, like, I was also just thinking, what was happening in music in 1993 in the United States as I was watching this one? I'm just like, this is, this, this is when normal pop radio music... And Eurovision are just existing on two completely different dimensions. Yeah, like I have like PBS Pledge Drive. Um, but the weird thing is, I think this would do really well at Melfest today. And I don't know if that's just because it's Arvin Garna and they've been at Melfest a few times recently. But it's just like, oh, no, I think this song would at least make it to a second chance round, if not like the final as like, oh, this is a song that is in Swedish that has made it to the Melfest final. You know? Yeah, yeah, it definitely has that vibe. And I do like Arvind Garna's brand of Swedish Bond stuff. Like they're very good at what they do. It's not fully to my taste, but they're doing it very well. Yeah. And like, I can, I can understand why there is audience appeal for it. It's just not like, I wouldn't seek it out. I, I like that you said PBS Pledge Drive, because if you look at the contest as a whole right now, this is when Ireland enters their imperial phase. So all the points are still jury-based. Uh, I have this down in my notes as the PBS special years. Yes. Well, I mean, you have Riverdance in the mix, so like that is a one-to-one correlation. <laughs> I think that's why 90s Eurovision just lives in my head in that, in next to PBS Pledge Drive is specifically because of Riverdance. It's worth noting Sweden is still on trend. The 90s winners are very mid-tempo ballady because that's what Ireland keeps sending and winning with, and Sweden is generally also sending that because they know that that's what does well in the contest. In 1997, that's what you, when you have like a handful of nations trying out the televote. That includes Sweden. They were one of the first ones to try out the televote. And in this 90s period, you can kind of see them chafing against all of those ballad things, because every so often they'll said something a little bit more up-tempo, a little bit more lively, and it'll be like 14th place mm-hmm. at the end of the night. So just like, again, Eurovision is kind of existing on a different dimension from what's actually happening in pop music. Leading up to the next time they win in 1999, a lot of rules start changing. 1997 is the last year that it's mostly jury voting. 1998, it's a pretty much a reversal of what happened there. It's mostly televoting with a handful of nations that don't have the phone systems that can support televoting sending a jury. As a result, the the top two at 1998 are way more up-tempo than the stuff that's been winning. Like, you have Diva win, and you have Where Are You in second place. To me, that feels reflective of just like, oh, the people are voting versus the juries are voting. This is sort of just like a difference in taste. Sweden places a reasonable 10th place that year with something a little bit more ballady, but Sweden being Sweden, you can kind of see the gears turning in their head that, hey, something might be shifting with the contest, since a bunch of other rules are shifting at the time. Uh, For 1999, the orchestra is made optional. Israel opts not to have one. We haven't had one since. Mm -hmm. Another big one that happens, the language rule is retired. Nations can send basically any language they would like 
and you see a dramatic increase in the number of English language entries. Because it turns out, if everybody understands the song, they're more likely to vote for it. So in 1999, Melfest uses a combined televote and jury score for the first time. Their winner starts in Swedish, but gets an English version for May. Just looking at that contest, all of Europe just seems ready for something more up-tempo and, and I, I guess, contemporary, although listening to this song in 2023, it now feels very dated to me. But Iceland is placing second with All Out of Love. Croatia's in the mix with Maria Magdalena. Everything's like a little bit MIDI-heavy, but we don't have an orchestra, so what are you going to do? Everything is kind of playing to the televoters rather than the juries, which makes a lot of sense because they've completely replaced the juries with televote. So Sweden wins. They they get to host in 2000. Real weird transitional period where a lot of things have changed very quickly. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was my note for Take Me to Your Heaven, where it's just like, oh, this really does feel like an end of an era in terms of how things are staged. She still has like the five singers like positioned in a triangle in the background, like doing the backing singer thing, like just like you would see for a performance from the 60s or the 70s. And it's like, oh, you just don't see that anymore yeah yeah and like particularly looking at the early 2000s if you look at melfest's stages they go from being very complex with the same sort of st- setups that we see in like 90s era vision of like main singer is here backup singers are over here and then there's just like a bunch of stage stuff because we don't have a bunch of leds yet right to by the by like the the late 2000s the melfest stage is very pared back because we're doing more staging things but sweden's entries in like the early 2000s feel very similar to that 1999 entry because you have listened to your heartbeat give me your love it hurts all of which are fun and like i enjoyed rewatching those but it's also kind of the start of the this sounds like melfest era where that's meant kind of derogatorily but if you look at this 2002 is when christer bjorkman becomes the producer of melfest and head of delegation for for sweden i think he's been very good for eurovision but i kind of think he's possibly even bad for sweden in terms of diversity in what they send this is the period that melfest goes from being one final of like 10 entries to multiple heats and when you have that many heats you need to start programming stuff for all of them and that means that you try to fill slots this is also when the 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 stage itself goes from being very complex to very very pared back just because again we're seeing more staging happening but all of the melfest winners start becoming very smooth and polished with a very 2000s production style that i don't think that we're going to be going back to as y2k trends start popping up again 2004, the semifinal is introduced, replacing the relegation system. Uh, one kind of cool note, Sweden is one of only three countries that were never relegated. The other two are Malta and Croatia. Huh. Wow, that that is a very interesting trio there. <laughs> right? Within, like, the, the period from, like, the mid-90s to the mid-2000s where relegation was happening, they apparently knew enough of what was going on and did well enough that they never had to sit a year out. Huh. Well, good for them. <laughs> yeah, it was like, Sweden is very good at making the grand final, but, like, I think... In the mid-2000s, they kind of don't notice that the contest is continuing to shift under its feet. Because the televote has taken over, what they send starts to feel reactive instead of proactive. It, the, and like the difference between the winner's televote score and Sweden's televote score is starting to get towards 100 or 150 points. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I don't think this is necessarily on purpose. Melfest itself seems to always have a bunch of variety. 
But the televoters seem to be responding to what did well rather than what will do well. Uh, I sent you the clip for 2005, uh, Mm -hmm. Las Vegas. This one would not get through a Melfest heat. That place, 19th, and, like, it... I have in my notes just, like, this is the song version of the channel at the hotel that's about the hotel's amenities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my note is, I hate everything about this. <laughs> like, it's just... Like, uh, like, well, I mean, part of it is, like, I just do not like Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, like, so, that's like, also part of it for me. And then, like, the 2005-ness of it just like just this g- general styling like this is the, the psychic damage <laughs> styling it's like oh the hair like it was it was fashionable at the time but looking back you're like oh like no no why no. did we allow this <laughs> well and also if you look at what's winning like this is right after wild dances won my number one place is first this is the time for an ethno banger this is not time for for like tourism spawn con right my number one wins Sweden's televoters. Oh, a, so- a solo female singer one? Cool. We're sending Corolla again. And she does fine. She comes in fifth. Her song is invincible, but she is highly invincible to Lordy's general metal crunchiness happening in Greece. 2007. Oh, cool. Lordy won? That's a band. We're going to send The Ark, which is like a show choir version of a glam rock band. <laughs> just, I, wa- I watched that, just like, just like something in the back of my head as I was watching this video for like the second time going through my playlist. Just like, this is just glee. This is, this would happen on glee, and I hate it. I think it's the little silver gloves in the outfit. It just feels very show choir. I was having a very difficult time putting my finger on this one. I landed on Schlager Strokes, but uh, <laughs> even that doesn't feel quite right. Like it, it, I think it felt it like part of the overall presentation of the 2007 contest, just because that one is like front to back a wild contest. But uh, yeah, an interesting choice from Sweden and one that I don't. I I would be shocked if they would make that sort of choice today. They place 18th, losing to Molitva that year. So yeah, they're they're down in the rankings. Alarm bells are going off. This is an emergency. Break the glass. We are sending Charlotte Pirelli in 2008. This is the one that's an asterisk in the times that they've gotten to the grand final because that placed 12th in its semifinal. But this was one of the two years that the jury got to pick the wildcard 10th place for the final, and Sweden got through. This is also when you start to see the Melfest staging lock in as the Eurovision staging. Thank you to the people who are uploading full Melfest finals for the 2000s, because I had to go through a lot of them to try and figure out when did this happen. And, like, 2008, like, they, they do this sort of, like, everything is black and white except for the blue. And, like, that that is both at Melfest and at Eurovision, just in-camera effects. But all of that d- can't save the song. Uh, Dima Balan wins, representing Russia for the second time. And this is when Sweden stops getting reactive and just gets weird, because in 2009, they send Lavoie. Fifteen years later, this is very Melfest. Now, this would probably place, like, maybe fourth in its heat, and just, like, nowhere near, like, that final 12 entries. But it's just a very weird choice. Uh, on the other hand, it handily qualifies in its semifinal. It gets through its fourth. But it still places towards the bottom of the grand final. Sweden needs to get more authentic because, like, they're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. So 2010, 
we were sending Anna Bergendahl. She's singing like a strummy guitar thing. It's very authentic. It does not make the final. It is their only non-qualification in the semis. That was the first year that I was watching Eurovision and watching that semifinal. And I remember I made a list. It's like, oh, well, these are the 10 that I would pick. And Sweden was on that list. And uh, they go through the results. I was like, oh, Sweden didn't make it. Oh, that's a shame. Not realizing how monumental it was that they did not make, like, this was the first time that they did not make the final. And it was a tough semifinal. Like, yes. I, I looked at the list. There were 12 songs that were viable contenders. The one that came in 10th, Life Looks Better in Spring, like, it's very similar in vibe to... <laughs> Stop reading this my is notes. My life. <laughs> well, sorry. It's... <laughs> facts are facts. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, no, no, just, I just, like, yeah, they, they missed the grand final by five points. Uh, but yeah, no, Cyprus qualifies with a similar style of song. On the other hand, that Cyprus song does not do that well in the grand final, so Sweden is probably still a little off. Yeah. But somehow that kind of kicks something off at SVT, because 2011, they kind of come back with the vengeance. Eric Sada wins with Popular, which I still don't like that song, but the staging is very strong, and they're doing big staging things, because we have that big broken glass thing that happens as he screams about being popular. 2011 ends up being Azerbaijan's year for reasons I wasn't clear on until I did some further research for this episode, so we'll, we'll circle back to that real soon. This is when we brought our own staging from home starts to kick off. I, I'm like, I don't know, 2011, the more I look at it, the more it's just kind of like a transitional year and kind of weaker overall. Like, I don't know, like, what what was going on with that one. Azerbaijan as a winner is just very mid to me. I really like the 2011 contest. Like, I... I... I think it was actually a very strong contest, but because of the way that the running order was determined, where it was still a random draw, it created a car crash in, like, I think Sweden was in slot six, and then Ireland with Jedward was in slot seven, and then Hungary was in eight. There were just all these songs that were the heavy hitters going into the contest, all grouped together in the middle of the first half of the <laughs> of the show. And it's like, oh, no, they're all just going to cancel each other out. And yeah, like I... There was a lot going on with 2011. So <laughs> that's one of the things that happens in 2013 is like there's suddenly like we're, we're getting better about the running order as the 2000s move on as like the 2010s mm -hmm. move on. That's probably why I think of it as a weaker year is just because the, the, <laughs> the structure of the contest is still kind of randomly decided, which can make weird things happen. You're right. It's, it's like that one year from when we were watching Eurovision again in like the 2000s where just like every country seemingly sent a nice strummy guitar guy. And so we had like seven of those in a row. Azerbaijan has won. Various things are happening with 2012. Like, Finland is singing in Swedish. They don't qualify. Singing Swedish in the contest, maybe not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> Valentina Mineta debuts for San Marino. She does not qualify. We've we've discussed that elsewhere. Uh, Sweden and Lorene top both the televote and the jury vote in Baku. that they stage euphoria still feels very fresh to me and just the fact that they took this cavernous stage in baku and made it very tight and intimate really made that stick out in the night so they've won hooray we're in malmo again in 2013 they introduced the flag parade at the grand final as a way of featuring each of the artists at the start a cool thing that i did not think could happen robin stierenberg 
who represents them in the contest that you're with you, won from the Melfest second chance round. He he qualifies to the final through that, and then he gets a bunch of jury points in the Melfest final and is a fairly distant second in the televote, but it doesn't matter because he wins. It can happen, kids. Dream big. Uh, as a home entry, it places 14th, but like I feel like home entries always have a tricky task, and like it's fine. 2013, I think, is the biggest mess of the year, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> like, Sweden oh. did a good job hosting, but uh, yeah, oh no, 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 actual... no, no, we need we need to talk about 2013 as a, as a mess uh, because oh, okay. there's a <laughs> there's a massive scandal over the voting that we don't have like the split jury televote results from the final. This has somehow been a blind spot in my own Eurovision knowledge. And like, I think part of it is just 2014 is when I started really following national finals because we were blogging together. I completely missed this as a story in 2013. And like, I was pulling a bunch of data to just sort of compare, hey, is Sweden playing more to the jury or the televote? And then had like a weird asterisk in my 2013 because like I couldn't, in, couldn't pull the chart via the, the tools in Google Sheets and had to go look at what's, what's going on with this chart. And took a look at it and just sort of cracked open a pinata full of SIM cards. Yeah. <laughs> Prior to the finals, 15 men at Lithuanian news site revealed videos suggesting that Azeri representatives were attempting to bribe Lithuanians to vote for them, giving small groups of people multiple SIM cards to activate before the contest and use during the voting window. Uh, this was not the only country they were doing that in. Janol Assand plays relatively coy about the 2013 contest and the vote and the allegations, but the EBU confirmed that there was attempted cheating, but nothing had happened. Uh, that said, there are differences between the apparent official votes from Azerbaijan's Televo internally and what was announced on television. They were mad. Russia was mad. Belarus was mad. There's no public record of the actual Televo jury split. We just have a chart that's like the average ranking of each entry from each nation, which you can't really use to back solve what the, what the point breakdown is. <laughs> Doesn't that mean like everybody is at like seven or like seven point two, seven point one? Yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a deeply unhelpful chart. It's it's. I was trying to make use of it and just realized no, I can't apply the number that's here by the number of countries that voted because some of them may not have voted for that entry. There is just like a massive amount of data missing because they don't want to know what countries were particularly vulnerable to this potentially happening. This results in a rules change that put the onus of preventing fraud on broadcasters with a penalty of a three-year suspension if they found you cheating. Nothing in 2013 was said confirming anything that had been revealed, but in 2015, a member of the reference group confirmed that, that Azerbaijan had cheated and that it was highly organized and highly expensive. Uh, that's kind of like a, a drive-by of that whole situation because I want to dig into that some more and some other places that there have been things like that and just sort of general televoting chaos. Uh, so I've just, like, given myself a new research project for later. Excellent. And it's a shame, too, because I think Azerbaijan was my favorite entry that year. <laughs> yeah, it's like they, it's it's like, like they had, it was a good entry, and they threw so much money at the staging because they're Azerbaijan. You don't have to mm -hmm. also do this. Just send a yeah. good entry and stage it well, you guys. <laughs> we then have the quickest turnaround between Sweden wins, because in 2015, they win with Monzel Merlot. We're dancing with the demons in our minds. We are the heroes of our time. Oh, but we're dancing with the demons in our minds. Previously, I've been like, that's really weird that they did that so quickly. And I'm just like, oh. 
No, 2013 was a mess, and they wanted to prove that no, <laughs> that it wasn't their fault. On our show, I previously posited that I think they're very aware of what trends are happening. You can connect the dots between Calm After the Storm coming second in 2014, and what Mons and the Debs, etc. send with Heroes in 2015. It's still country pop. Mm-hmm. 2016 as host, it's not all love, love, peace, peace. We have the introduction of the televote and jury vote split. And like, I'm just like, is this just like a transparency measure of just like, hey, we're going to show you a little bit of the sausage making process after how messy 2013 was. We're now getting into like the very recent history part of things. So I'm just going to go a little bit bigger picture about Sweden's status in the contest. We were really in the we brought our own staging from home era, especially with Heroes, especially with Dancy Waff, especially with I Can't Go On. It gets really annoying when it's anything more complex than like Cornelia Jacobs, like big green thingy. Because <laughs> just like, okay, cool. We need to bring five treadmills. We need to bring a whole separate screen for our custom graphics. We need to bring an entire Panini press that takes 90 seconds to load. I'm still mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> Every time in the arena, just like, oh my gosh. This was when I was really doing my number crunching. And again, all, all of the SIM cards popped out. Uh, but Sweden is now playing to the jury when they used to play the televote. Like jury scoring with equal weight to the televote is introduced in 2009. Sweden was generally playing to the televote up until then, but starting in 2013, and with only a few exceptions, Sweden starts getting more of their total points from the jury rather than from the televote. Okay. Uh, those are, the two exceptions are when they host in 2016 and Tusa's Voices in 2021. Other than, like In those two years, they get more points from the televote, but overall, they are getting more points from the juries. In terms of larger trends, Creaster steps down from running Melfest in 2021 to focus on the American Song Contest, and now the Canadian Song Contest, and the Indian Song Contest, and El Salvador? I don't, like, he's just really yeah. shopping <laughs> that around, like the monorail guy. Yeah. <laughs> The choice of Cornelia Jacobs does feel like a different type of Melfest winner in 2022. Like, it's still very polished, but, like, it's that very practiced sort of unpolish. A no-makeup makeup look, or, like, what the Italians call sprezzatura, where you're practiced messy. And, like, Cornelia Jacobs is very good. I like that song a lot, but that still doesn't win. Is it time to bring in the big guns again? Is this secretly another wilderness period for Sweden where they're not quite understanding what's actually starting to do well? Because of that introduction in 2016, we're in an era where they've made the televote contribution louder and more visible. Right. And we're starting to see pushback when something that the televote liked more doesn't win. Uh, since 2015, when Mons won, there have been four contests, including that year's, where the winner of the televote was not the winner of the contest. Only one of the most five recent winners uh, from the jury has won the contest, and that was Lorene in 2023. Three out of the last five televote winners have won the contest. Uh, Israel in 2018, Italy in 2021, and Ukraine in 2022. I talked earlier about how you were starting to see like a hundred or so points between Sweden's score with a televote and the winner's score with a televote. The difference between Sweden's televote score and the televote winner's televote score has widened to an average of 202 points in the last five years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. Wow. I was shocked at at sort of the distance because like i again i've been thinking that sweden is is dominant and they're always on the pulse they're good at, at sort of identifying trends uh but yeah like the televote yeah like 2018 was a bad year 2019 was a bad year televote wise and, yeah televote yeah televote wise uh, yeah. uh sweden was was 296 points off from israel in the televote uh they were 198 points off from norway in 2019 uh, 255 points off from Italy in 2021, 
259 points off from Ukraine in 2022, 133 points behind Finland this year. Wow. They are not doing well in the televote. I've noticed that and I've gained a lot of joy from it when, when that's <laughs> happened in the moment. Circling back around to where I started, if Sweden isn't as much of a Eurovision powerhouse as I think they are, what are they? Because just thinking about Sweden, some of the stuff we discussed, they understand the rules really well. Like they're very good at, at noticing changes to those and adapting to them based on sort of what, what that does to the contest as a whole. It sometimes takes them a few years to get a hang of what it's doing, but they will see what's winning and sort of adapt what they produce. Like what they produce is very Eurovision shaped. But a lot of times the actual content is off from what the general mood of the contest wants. So I think that makes them the large language model of the contest. Like I refuse to call that generative AI just because AI is not intelligent. Uh, just as a person who works in tech, but just like they're they're the open AI of the contest. Sweden is definitely smarter than that predictive text model that we made five years ago in episode twenty three. Yeah. <laughs> episode twenty three, Mike. We did that as our fifth off season episode ever. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we waited to do that until like at least episode fifty. So to take an article that sci-fi author Ted Chang wrote for The New Yorker earlier this year and apply it to the contest, Sweden's output is a blurry copy of Eurovision. It's got the shape down, but the details tend to be a little off the more that you look. A lot of those systems are all marketing hype. They don't do all of the things that they say that they do. So Sweden also is a lot of marketing hype. They don't do all the things that they say they do. I don't know. That, that, is, that, that is where I've ended up. Uh, I'm hopeful for next year's contest. Uh, Sweden is, is very much a dutiful student of the contest, and they always show up for class and put on a good show. I just kind of wish they'd stop looking at everyone else's work so intently and just do their own thing. Uh, I'm very interested to see what sorts of jury changes, if any, come out of this year's reference group meeting, and how Sweden's entries, in turn, adapt to that. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I did I did too much research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Eurowhat. Thanks for listening. The Eurowhat podcast is hosted by Ben Smith, that's me, and Mike McComb. That's me. Find us on social media at Eurowhat or on our website, Eurowhat.com where you can access our archive of more than 200 episodes. If that's not enough, we have bonus episodes on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurowhat. Help support the show and join our AV club. Next time on the Eurowhat, we get caught up on the Eurovision New Year headlines as 2024 begins in earnest. <laughs>